0: You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores a space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This is an episode that we like to call Up to Date, and joining me is our correspondent, Adam Bristol. Welcome back, Adam.
1: Hey, Andre, I'm ready to talk some science.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So it's the middle of summer, and for people who probably are living anywhere other than San Francisco, where we're just shrouded in a cloud of fog, you might be experiencing warm summer days and even nights, and perhaps there is one thing that annoys you. Well, certainly in my hometown of Toronto, I know that there are tons of mosquitoes, and I hate them.
1: I hate mosquitoes, too.
0: (laughs) Adam grew up in upstate New York, so he is no stranger to Aegis Aegypti, a- or is it Aegis egypti? I've never tried to pronounce those things because I hate them.
1: Yeah, our kids uh, basically never get mosquito bites, which I find to be so strange as childhood. Yeah, not just yet. just kind of live with them and dealt with them, and they were just a fact of life. And growing up here, our kids are uh, amazingly, basically like mosquito-free for the entire summer.
0: Although, you know, our six year old already hates mosquitoes. Like he's experienced them once in his life and he's like petrified whenever there's a anything that looks like a mosquito in his room. It's like we have to call out the, the National Guard.
1: Yeah, but I, I that might be somewhat reflected off of us, right? Because <laughs> we are conveying to him through social learning, you know, our, our our dislike of mosquitoes.
0: So it's not totally irrational, this fear of mosquitoes, though, because they are apparently the deadliest animal to humans because they are such great vectors for viruses. That's true. And one of my favorite episodes of a show I did uh, with Tested.com um, that aired on another streaming platform called Newsy with our former co-host, Kishore Hari, was called Science in Progress. And we did an episode with Shannon Bennett, who is um, a, a scientist at the California Academy of Sciences, and she studies mosquitoes because they are vectors for viruses. Um, And this is just a plug because I believe Tested is going to be putting those shows uh, up for free on their YouTube channel sometime in the near future. So I'll I'll let you know when that happens and you can watch. This is like one of my favorite episodes to shoot because Shannon is so knowledgeable and so interesting and really funny.
1: And did you talk about some of the efforts using biotechnology to try to... Potentially eradicate, if not sterilize, aegis aegypti. We mosquitoes. did
0: so. Not to put Shannon out of a job, uh, if we eradicate this, you know, virus vector. But I was asking, you know, how do we get rid of these things? And this is uh, one place where actually a lot of people are, are in agreement in terms of using a gene drive, using a, a, a mechanism by which you can change the genetics of or the, or the the gene frequency in a population to try to make the whole population sterile and and prevent it from growing. Well, just recently, there was a paper that was published, uh, I think it's just this week, in PNAS. Um, The first author is Azadeh Aryan. And this was uh, from research done largely, I I believe, in Virginia. So the authors uh, come from Virginia Tech or the University of Virginia. And what they found was that there is a single gene that can convert... Female Aedes aegypti, which are the ones that actually do the biting, because what I learned from Shannon is that the females bite humans because they need the blood to feed their young. So it's essentially, you know, the mother's gift. Uh, It's still gross. In any case, the males don't bite. They don't bite humans. They don't. They don't eat blood. Um, So if you could make all the females males, the idea is not only would you have, you know, a decrease in reproduction, but also you'd have fewer biting mosquitoes. And so, in this research that they showed, was that this gene uh, is called the Nix gene. It essentially knocked out, there, there was a, I should say, there was a female to male conversion rate of 100%, and that that remained stable over many generations. This seems like a really effective tool.
1: Hmm. And so, they're doing this, I guess, in the gametes. Somehow, there's some transgene which. Is, you can't take an adult living female and convert it into a male. You have to do this developmentally.
0: Well, so yeah. So they used CRISPR-Cas9 in embryos to develop these males. But then the way that they model about how this might call the population is that they would release these homozygous males that have such a dominant sex conversion unit. And that in fact, that's actually more effective than the sterile insect technique or the female killing approaches um, that are currently, you know, in in vogue in terms of suppressing the pest populations. So I think that that's that's what's interesting about this work is that it shows that this is robust over generations. So once you release a number of these males, they will dominate the population. That's the idea in, in terms of the next set of progeny with this gene.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, there's no question that simply understanding in greater detail the molecular genetic basis of sex in these mosquitoes is critical, given the bi- the the sexual dimorphism in terms of you know the the, the almost their their propensity of being a vector. Um, But I think it would be absolutely fantastic if we could somehow eradicate them or at least greatly reduce their numbers because they are such an important vector for uh, human diseases.
0: And I think it is really surprising that there's really one gene that can do this because we know that in humans, biological sex is not determined by a single gene. It's, you know, a whole bunch of factors. And in fact, that's why, you know, it's very difficult to use a biological marker to determine uh, a human individual's sex. All right. So what was on your desk this week?
1: Okay. Well, for now, something completely different. I'm going to turn us to robotics. Okay. Because robotics fascinate me because in many ways, trying to give robots certain capabilities, often you can be biologically inspired. You can make them human-like and give them and try to take inspiration from understanding how humans work or other biological species, and then try to replicate those in the robot. Or you can sort of go completely out of out of left field, or say, look, we don't need to be constrained by what Mother Nature and evolution have solved, how they've solved those problems, but rather, let's just figure out what are the needs we, 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 we have in front of us, and how can we address those. Mm-hmm. And so these are two research findings that have come out of two universities this week. The data will be presented not in a peer-reviewed journal but in scientific conferences in their respective fields. And the first one came out of Carnegie Mellon University, specifically from their Robotics Institute, and this is work from David Held and his colleagues. And the issue here is is how do you grasp objects, which you think would in all areas of automation be very important. Simply mm-hmm. reach out grab something and retrieve it and bring it somewhere else. This is something that any baby really can do in most cases. But, of course, coding that into a robot with with, with robot vision is very challenging. And what they're specifically interested in is some of the unique challenges of transparent objects.
0: Oh, you mean like like pla- clear, clear plastic or- clear oh, plastic right, sure. like a
1: you know imagine a little roll of scotch tape that sits on your desk uh-huh right so that is a, presents some unique challenges in something that's opaque and solid color that the robots are much better at today sure. similarly some of these problems arise when you have something shiny and reflective mm-hmm. imagine something like a um a chrome bumper on a car, if you think of the automation involved. Or a disco ball. A disco ball, exactly. Or, um, you know, a shiny ribbon or any of these things. Now, one common way that robots do this type of object recognition and grasping is through infrared depth cameras. Mm. Mm. So they're basically using the infrared emanations from or reflections off of objects and using that to estimate depth and then using that to grab that doesn't work for transparent or reflective objects because they get in some transparent objects basically goes right through them mm. or reflective objects gets dispersed in a way that is is impoverished from an, a robotic vision perspective what they found is they could take even that 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 impoverished uh, infrared data but combined it with just standard color camera and then if you in through some machine learning, you can basically teach the robots to be much better at grasping those shiny or transparent objects. The reason why I like this is because if you think about our vision, we use many depth cues mm-hmm. to be able to identify where objects are in space and then and that that can guide our reaching and grabbing. We don't use infrared images to do that. Mm-hmm. We use probably you could use some shading thing. There are many different types of depth cues. Some of them are monocular, some can be binocular. And to to sort of, to take a non-human inspired and then combine it with a human inspired one I thought was very interesting. I don't see in in this research disclosure, whether they've done other forms of depth cameras instead of the infrared. So a simple mm-hmm. depth camera might be something like you have probably on the on the back of your smartphone, which mm-hmm. is having two lenses to give you a quote unquote binocular disparity mm-hmm. or a difference in perspective between the two images, you can calculate depth based on that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really curious about that, but this is coming out of Carnegie Mellon. So again, you, it seems trivial and simple, but the idea of giving robots the capability beyond just solid opaque objects, now we can sort of broaden that opportunity set include objects that are transparent or shiny.
0: Yeah, that that would help us get like our Boston Dynamics dog to get us a glass of water or find our keys.
1: Yeah, not even Spot Mini, it'd probably be the <laughs> Atlas one. The Atlas oh, is right. one is the one that does all the somersaults and the picking up boxes and things yeah. like that. becoming your strongest financial self good plan northwestern mutual's guide to good financial planning can help you balance spending and saving set goals and start creating the life you want to be living get it today at NorthwesternMutual.com/goodplan. slash good plan the northwestern mutual life insurance company milwaukee wisconsin set your mind free with a free plan from fidelity start by organizing your plan around what matters most to you as you go, you'll be able to see your full financial picture, which covers spending, saving, debt, and goals in one simple view. Get started by visiting fidelity.com slash free plan. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.
0: Well, I have two more things to talk about, uh, which are both pretty short. But uh, and then I'll I'll turn it back to you. The first one is more relevant to where we are in the world today, and I thought it was a, a really interesting finding and one that used a pretty simple design and approach. And and those are my my favorite kinds of scientific studies that, that feels like you know somebody made this discovery without a ton of you know uh, very technical expensive material essentially, all you needed in this case was a pupilometer, a way of measuring the um, diameter of a person's pupil. Mm. And what they found is that um, people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, essentially, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder include a kind of hypervigilance, um, an inability to kind of get away from the traumatic replaying of whatever uh, uh, trauma they experienced. And What they showed in the study is that those individuals, even when looking at uh, emotionally neutral images, still showed uh, pupils dilated the way you and I would who don't have PTSD when looking at at pretty arousing and, and fear inducing images. So the idea is that in, in these individuals, they're in this constant state of sympathetic nervous activation uh, in the fight or flight mode uh, of the autonomic nervous system, as opposed to the opposite rest and digest or the parasympathetic nervous system. And by showing them a series of, of images and calculating, you know, comparing them to a c- control group and figuring out what their pupils are doing under these different conditions. The authors were not surprised that their pupils, you know, dilate quickly and remain dilated when they're seeing negative images. That seems to fit in with what we know about PTSD. What was surprising was that they didn't show constriction. Uh, it for images that normally activate the parasympathetic nervous system, so the idea is here is that yes, you know the, we want to be able to get into fight or flight because you want to be able to activate your nervous system in a you know in a linked way. so I like to think of the sympathetic nervous system, one of the major differences is that the ganglia the 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 essentially uh, groups of cells that control the different organs that are involved in the system's response, so heart rate, breathing rate, you know pupil constriction, or dilation act in sympathy they're they're in a chain of ganglia along sort of the sides of the spinal cord which is not the case for the parasympathetic nervous system because those parts of the parts of the parasympathetic nervous system like rest and digest they can act more independently right you don't need them to act in sympathy but in fight or flight you want everything to be coordinated so you have this linked chain but the, the way you get out of fight or flight is by activating the parasympathetic rebound. And so it's really important to be able to activate that system to help you calm down out of fight or flight, or else your, parasympath- your sympathetic nervous system can sort of be in overdrive. And that seems to be what's happening for these individuals.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating study. It's widely believed, or, or it's thought that your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems there's a yin yang there right that, mm-hmm. that there's it's really not one or the other but it's really a balance between the two the two systems and clearly it seems that in PTSD i think that's been known for a while there seems to be an imbalance in favor of the sympathetic activation of fight or flight mm-hmm. i would be curious to see whether Other metrics of sympathetic activation are correlated with the pupil dilation. The pupil dilation makes perfect sense, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is a very clear sympathetic-driven involuntary response. But there are others, as you described, things Mm -hmm. like um, you know, heart rate is is an easy one. There are even Mm -hmm. some, uh, probably something like a galvanic skin response might actually be correlated. I'd be curious to see if those all work in concert together.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that obviously uh, for a lot of people who have PTSD, one of the more effective treatments is a beta blocker, which blocks sympathetic, which essentially you know blocks sympathetic nervous system activity. And of course, it's not a panacea, right? It's not a cure. And um, and you know, there's some interesting, controversial, and ethical things that we need to consider. Like for example, there's some talk of the military using propranolol prophylactically uh, on soldiers as they go out into uh, into combat where they might experience trauma. And the idea is if you give them propranolol, then they won't have the sympathetic nervous system reaction in the moment. And that can like essentially um, attenuate their, the chances of them developing PTSD. But that's very controversial because do you really want soldiers who can't feel? Uh, But I don't know if it's
1: not necessarily can't feel, because you think of Larry Cahill and James McGaw's work on emotional memory, Mm -hmm. simply what that might do is to tamp down amygdala activation, which might not privilege that memory event from causing something like a PTSD.
0: Yeah, I just, you know, I just get nervous about this idea of, of, you know, I think that we do rely on our physiological response to a situation to help us make decisions about whether or not we're, you know, doing the right thing. And I Mm -hmm. think that if you lose that, I mean, I'm not saying we're entirely uh, beholden to our physiology, but, you know, I think that there's enough evidence that, you know, you don't want to get rid of the discomfort if if it's really a situation that requires a moral compass. I think that's Um,
1: exactly right. It's just a question of in the moment or the residual memory of that event. So mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think in the moment we need to um, it's just this is uh, oh, who's the guy from Iowa? Now? Uh, Antonio Damasio's mm-hmm. work, you know, mm-hmm. that emotional reactions and emotional responses are critical to mm-hmm. effective decision making. I think with PTSD the issue is is there can be a lingering after effect of right. that and if you could find if you could if you could walk that line of saying yes in the moment you'll make the right rational emotionally informed decisions perfect but will you not have the the inappropriate emotional response long after and I, I could see where a you know based on the work in animals how that could be done potentially mm-hmm. by manipulating some of these sympathetic activation the interesting thing about the study you described is that it shows that the sympathetic response is intact right not mm-hmm. surprisingly right mm-hmm. because you see the pupil dilation it almost suggests that it's a perhaps there's a deficiency In the parasympathetic counteraction of that. That's right. And And I think that's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that might actually suggest a whole new therapeutic. Yeah, maybe you could
0: drive the parasympathetic nervous system. Right, rather than trying to 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 tamp tamp down down on the sympathetic activation. Exactly. Well, I want to give uh, credit to the authors. First author is Amy McKinnon, Uh, senior author is Robert Snowden, um, and it was published in Biological Psychology in June. Okay, I have one more before I turn it back to you. Okay. Um, and uh, this reminded me of one of my favorite Inquiring Minds episodes, episode 234, in which I interviewed an author named Ben Goldfarb, um, who had written a book called Eager. Remember what Yes, that book I remember was about? about beavers. <laughs> about beavers, yeah. yeah. So that was one of my favorite episodes. It's so interesting. Well, anyway, beavers are coming back here on Inquiring minds, and not just because I'm Canadian. Uh, These particular beavers are problematic in Alaska. Uh, So maybe you could argue that, uh, you know, these Canadian icons are now um, usurping parts of Alaska. But What's really interesting is that, you know, when we talked to to Ben, we learned about how beavers are actually ecosystem engineers, they design their own ecosystem by building dams and changing altering water flow, they essentially change their environment so that they can thrive. And what they're finding is that in the Arctic tundra, um, particularly in this case, in northwestern Alaska, Beavers are proliferating and they're having an outsized impact on essentially taking advantage of climate change and destroying more tundra at a faster rate. Hmm. So they're building these dams. And I just want to give you some numbers. So they, it, the, the study was, um, or one of the study areas was about 100 square kilometers. And the number of dams that they noticed or that they found increased from two in 2002 to 98. In 2019. And then in a larger area that was about 430 square kilometers, the number of dams increased from 94 in 2010 to 409 in 2019. And so I mean, that's, that's a huge increase. Um, And what they're seeing, of course, is that there's huge landscape changes that are that are occurring. Um, And so there's some, you know, there's some question of whether these beavers are actually uh, accelerating the changes that are happening in the tundra.
1: Hmm. And they're able to build all these extra dams because of the underlying climate change. It's making it more accessible or more viable. In well, I think
0: it's, it's it, because it's warmer, they're able to go further north mm. and make and, you know, thrive in habitats that are further north than they normally would. And they're just finding the tundra habitat, particularly, you know, they, they, they probably don't have as many predators or, or, you know, that and and yeah, they seem to be enjoying <laughs> the Arctic. Um, although there are a lot, a lot of mosquitoes up there. So that'd be mm-hmm. a good place for a gene drive. But uh, anyway, uh, I just thought it was really interesting to think about how Beavers are are thriving uh, at you know because of climate change potentially, but also creating potentially a lot of damage uh, as you know the 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 tundra melts.
1: Well, I mean it 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 speaks to the again in many cases of biology there are there are ways in which we think humans are unique. Think of the Anthropocene, which we're currently living in. That mm-hmm. is the impact of humans on the environment mm-hmm. and the flora and fauna of this planet, but certainly the ability or the capability of certain species to impact their environments is not unique to humans. And Mm -hmm. we're seeing here that, you know, given enough time and given enough, you know, beaver-like, what would you say, work ethic, you know, those eager beavers, you know, grits, (laughs) they certainly can uh, alter their environments too. And it would be very interesting that this research group continues to follow the broader impacts, not just on the geology and topology of that area, but of course on other species too that are impacted.
0: And it's another Ben who's uh, uh, interested in these particular beavers. But this is Ben Jones and senior author Jeff Disbrow. uh, And this this research was published in Jude in Environmental Research Letters. All right. So take us home, Adam. What's your last story? Well, I
1: am going to take us home. I'm going to take us home here to Earth and to think about plate tectonics. And I think all of our listeners will be familiar with plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. It is the broken eggshell crust of the earth Mm -hmm. which moves around and is responsible for the volcanoes for the himalayan mountains uh and all you know a lot lot of geologic processes earthquakes earthquakes exactly (laughs) slip faults and all that but you perhaps haven't thought about why it is or how it is that those those plates were first initiated that is how did the earth's crust Go from a single lithosphere. So the lithosphere mm-hmm. is the is the technical term for the upper upper mantle and the crust. How do so we go? From, like
0: we're, how, how do we get from Pangea to? No the... no 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 no.
1: Pangea is a landmass, is a kind of a the full landmass oh, okay. that has been broken up and moved around through plate tectonics. I'm talking talking three and a half billion years ago where the eggshell of the Earth's crust essentially was first cracked.
0: Oh, got it. How do you
1: establish the plates? Oh, right. And this is obviously a, a, a very fundamental question in geology and one that we're 50 years in in understanding plate tectonics. And it's obviously not exactly clear how the plates came to fruition or came to first, you know, first mm-hmm. emerge. And so there was a paper this week out of the University of Hong Kong uh, in Nature Communications, which way they did some um, basically modeling of these 3D spherical shell models. And what they essentially demonstrate was if you basically estimate the thickness of the lithosphere, and they said they 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 varied over a long range, some case could be like 30 kilometers thick to well over 100 kilometers thick. They found that when that uh, when the when they basically have an expansion and a thinning of the lithosphere, you can create what are proto cracks or the beginnings of cracks. And with the underlying convection currents of the mantle, that is probably enough that you need to start to make some regional weaknesses that then crack and you can get a pattern of mm. breaks around the Earth's surface that look a lot like and meet the criteria that look a lot like the Earth place today. Wow. And so this is trying to is trying to theorize what was the initiating event. Mm-hmm. that would lead to the cracked plates that we have of plate tectonics today. Mm-hmm. This this was an interesting one because if you go back to late last year, there was a, a quite a notable paper um, that came out of a group in, uh, geez, where were they again? Um, sorry, I have it here. They were from uh, blah, 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 Australia, right? Yeah, M- Macari Planetary Research Institute, which they hypothesized that it's actually major meteorite impacts Around that time of say three and a half to four billion years ago, which is called the Archaea Epoch, hmm. that could have facilitated this process because they looked at a lot of geological evidence and that these extraterrestrial impacts may have facilitated that transition to the plates that we have wow. today, the plate I tectonics.
0: Mean, that sounds like, you know, a, a, yeah, a, like a meter has a big effect <laughs> beyond just like, you know, it making the dinosaurs go extinct here it's like completely reshaping the you know the, the crust of the earth
1: yeah because the 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 paper last week in nature communications was really focused on internal processes mm. right that are that are mm-hmm. that are happening internally and just locally within our, our planet whereas the uh, uh, the, ge- uh, the the paper from last year in geology was about well what are some external processes mm. that could impinge upon the earth? that may facilitate this you know this process
0: well i'm laughing because you know it just seems like if there was going to be a meteor that was going to hit the earth and, and reshape our tectonics that'd be like so 2020
1: yeah exactly i mean oh <laughs> mua mua you know, come back please please
0: <laughs> why you want to hitch a ride
1: sure you know where's uh john hicks and his hot licks <laughs> dan, you know?
0: hicks, dan hicks dan hicks dan hicks and his hot dan hot hicks licks. and
1: his hot licks hell i'd go hell i'd go
0: so that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Ryhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Andre Viscontis, and joining me this week is Adam Bristol. See you next week.